the Application Security Podcast. Here we go. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Application Security Podcast. This is the final episode at the AppSec USA conference in Orlando, and Chris and Robert are joined by Brian Najeski. He talks about containers, their usage within AppSec, and about orchestration. As always, thanks for listening and enjoy! Hey folks, Robert and I are back at AppSec USA, and today we're going to explore containers and application security. And so, Brian, right off the start, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us your security origin story. How did you get into this crazy world of application security? Uh, name's Brian Jesse. I'm actually the lead information security engineer for uh, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. Uh, we're a uh, DHS component, formerly out of INS, which then split into ICE and us. Um, my particular background is actually... Uh, it was kind of weird because I got started in IT <laughs> by accident uh, and then grunge and then worked my way up to where I am now. So I did help desk, I did desktop support, um, I did all the tiers of the help desk, uh, got into some analyst work, worked in system admin, started in config change management, a little bit of risk management, and then uh, <laughs> I was actually hired by the government to uh, as a contractor originally to do application development in PHP, which was like two generations old. And it paid more, so I was like, okay, sure, and kind of spawned from there. Um, my uh, government boss at the time took me under the wing, did a direct hire, um, and I was doing digital forensics exercises with the public, So, um, and then all the collegiate and CNCI 7 activities, which was uh, accelerating cyber education okay. from federal government. Okay, and then so did that land you in the, so you kind of landed in the world of AppSec, uh, so you transitioned into this PHP kind of developer role, mm -hmm. and then somebody kind of helped to bring you along. Did that, was your next stop AppSec from there? Yes, from there, because I had the developer background, I had the sysadmin background, um, and what happened is DOD sequestration hit, and my, this department actually got completely canceled, so all public outreach got killed out. Okay. So I got reassigned to the IT departments at IT background, and I started doing their um, risk management and security control since I had a prior healthcare background. Okay. Yeah, it's funny. <laughs> Every we, we ask this question of everybody, and there's the sysadmin side, there's the mm -hmm. developer side. You kind of coming from both of those perspectives too. So um, you're doing a talk today here at AppSec USA, mm -hmm. and so uh, and it's from what I understand, it's about your story of or your experiences in. Applying AppSec to an enterprise, right, in regards to container security. And so um, I'd say let's just start, just tell us the story here that right. you're going to tell today. Um, I had started at uh, USAIS. I was only about three months in. I was hired to do the application security because I was trained with uh, certain products, commercial products, and I had experience doing those. So um, the CIO goes, um, that guy knows of your IT, of your security department knows about uh, application security. I want to tiger team him. I want to deploy containers, and I want it in six months. I was like, okay, yes, sir. 
Um, so the, I sat with the developers for literally three months. We did like basic Docker containers, figured out a little bit of the policy of how to manage that. Uh, trying to figure out how to get the security tools to work with that was fun. So we were doing stupid stuff like, oh, we're enable SSH in the container and let me run my standard security tools to see what comes back. Or poking and prodding the uh, processes from root and see, oh, if I destroy this process or take its volume away, what happens? Um, a lot of that was from my prior digital forensics training background when I was working at a defense cybercrime center. Um, <clears throat> then a lot of that comes into the policy and process, which a lot of that technology still doesn't have today, especially at the enterprise level. Um, we play with a lot of the orchestration frameworks, both open source and commercial. We had vendors on site. We gave them requirements. We could send them to the battery of test. Um, a couple of those vendors uh, stayed. A lot of them left because they couldn't meet from a federal requirements a lot of the things that we have to do. Hmm. What, what type of requirements are those? So I'm since we process significant loads of privacy act information, so anybody that's coming in with a visa, um, immigration statuses, uh, we all treat it as like U.S. citizen PII because they have the possibility of becoming a U.S. citizen. Okay. Um, so all the privacy acts, so system of records, privacy impact assessments. Um, so we had to look like down at the kernel level because the kernel is what's being shared on these hosts um, to do the processing of the containers at a virtualization level. So you're, you were talking about how you had SSH enabled on the containers in the early days, and I'm kind of <laughs> I'm kind of taken away that you might not have thought that was the best practice for where you are now. Um, so what's your take on? I mean, should containers just be isolated to the point where there's no, like you can just burn it, throw it away, and make oh, yeah. another one? Um, so so I guess what's I mean, would you, would you use SSH in a container today, or is that something that's kind of a lesson learned you figured out? It was a lesson learned, and a lot of the benchmarks went around. So um, Center for Internet Security benchmark wasn't that mature yet. Um, they had it as a possible non-scored control at the time. Now it's a scored control. A um, little pressure from us. Um, and we also made sure some of those best practices we learned, uh, we contributed to both drafts of the new NIST publication for application container security. Okay. And so you, I guess we kind of, we were talking about how you had kind of made the, that made the move. You started to do some initial things and where, where'd you go from there? Uh, we started working on the orchestration. So we're, we already had, um, what does that mean, too, by the way? Our listeners may not right. understand what our discussion uh, is. Using automated means for deployment and release um, or blocking release. Um, we're all about as much automation as possible. We have several hundred developers and several hundred programs, so resources are limited. And we also uh, typically use contractors to do our development practices. Okay. Um, there can be anywhere from 30 to 40 different contracts spread across that with timelines of six months to a year and then renewals of options if we elect. So that means your staff is always rotating. So having those practices down is crucial, especially documented. And of course, each team that comes in, especially if they're coming from typical commercial industry, kind of has their own little uh, practices they like to do, which then don't mash up for what we like to do because from what our testing is provided. So you talked about policies and processes and... You know, I spend a lot of time in the startup world <laughs> where, where there is no, like, they just yeah. laugh if you're like, oh, policy? What, are we, what is that? We'll, that? Do, we'll, we'll, we'll do that after our Series B round, right? uh -huh. and they'll force yeah. us to have policies. So so what type of policies, then, would you recommend to and processes that are well-defined for an enterprise that may be 
not as far along as you are right now as far as being having a solid container security approach. Right. Um, in the maturity model I'll be discussing later today, I'm talking about from the host level, the data level, and the image level, because it goes back to those three. Your host is where everything kind of commingles, because it commingles in that kernel, so you got to do certain things there. Um, you also have the images. So everyone's like, oh, it's a Docker image. It's all on Docker Hub because it's open source. So I'll just use that. Well, people don't realize, and a lot of those, even that image technology and the other image technologies, a lot of them are um, copy on write systems. So you have layered file systems. You can see everything, the history that's in there. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes there's malware baked in there. We have alerted several of those container hosts about that. So those are those are... Docker images on the Docker Hub that yep. somebody has yeah. sneaked through yes. with malware and embedded it's increasing. Yeah. Um, some of the companies have made mitigations against that, but they're doing it at a CVE level. They're not doing it at a oh, this is a custom piece of malware that phone tone. Hmm. And the only way you're going to do that is through traditional black box pen, pen test assessment, yeah. where you're watching processes, network, and then all of your syscalls. Yeah, I remember a, a couple of years ago, I went to a talk uh, by Tony UV, who we uh, interviewed before on the show, and he had a uh, talk about threat modeling uh, tainted containers mm -hmm. and talk about that particular attack vector that, you know, that, that's another way that we're not thinking about that, I, you know, you just pull down these containers, you don't know what's in them, um, there's still untrusted data and, you need, uh, and, and pieces of uh uh, hardware or not hardware, but uh, some software and other things that may be inside, and, and you don't know, and so uh, you need to treat it as such. So, two years later, you you mentioning that it kind of brings that to mind that yeah, it, it's out there, and he he was kind of warning ahead of time to say, as this continues to ramp up and continues to be popular, we need to think about this stuff. I mean, it's a common. I mean, that that thread is starting to make its way across other places. Like you hear about corrupt apps. Mm -hmm. Like I've been reading about these different game apps that it's basically like a shell that sits on top of malware to get people and they make them look like something that's a real game so if you're not paying attention you might download this one you go to run it and then it says oh we need your credit card to continue right. uh, so that, and that's gonna i think that's gonna be a more and more popular threat over time when we um it's always been a threat in the open source world but Open source has been pretty good about catching that stuff in code by not just letting people check in random things to the Linux kernel. Yeah, it all comes down to maintainer and how many maintainers and who's watching. So if it's like one maintainer, it can have anything at that point. But from uh, what you're talking about, what we see is by default, a lot of these container technologies, they run as root, which means you can escalate right up back to kernel. Mm -hmm. um, the syscalls are usually wide open. Um, uh, Docker open source. I think I'm maybe misquoting the number. It's about it's a hundred. It's like a high hundreds, maybe low two hundreds of the possible like three hundred fifty syscalls, and some of them are just wide open. Uh, a lot of people are not looking at that right now. Um, there are some tools to help profile that on an application basis, and you do it on a runtime. Um, so, so from your perspective, then is that. Is that something that you you're when in the way that you recommend people roll these types of programs out and handle these things? Are you recommending that some of those things like should containers actually run as root or what's a best practice here? Right, uh, always run as a non-privileged user. Um, that's in the CSS benchmarks from day one, and a lot of the vendors now. Um, you said it does nobody application users as long as it's not root. Um, what 
one of the practices I'm not seeing, which we like a lot, we have difficulty as well because it requires some manual fiddling with the app, is read-only containers. Hmm. So basically you're setting the container at runtime or a read-only state, and you're giving it only certain mount points to write data to, like tempfs or temp, and it cannot write to any other portion of that file system. But that also helps with is your data management. So you're making sure no data is being written to that container. So when that container dies, guess what? The, the data dies with the container. Let's so you can consistent. deploy a web application then in a read-only container. Mm-hmm. And then that, well, that sounds like it would be a really good, yeah. just a general security feature to say, I don't have to worry about something compromising this system. Even if it was able to compromise something mm-hmm. in memory, it wouldn't be able to write anything back up to disk. Right. They'd have to deal with memory there's possibilities there, but you're you're lowering your surface area of attack. Sure. So we so I mean, any other best practices that you're kind of thinking about the things that people get wrong from the default out of the box that you think people should look at? The one I was surprised about that did not come out in this work, and we gave comment on in the last draft was data management, persistence of data, and how to do that. Um, a lot of apps still want to bind to the host, which means then you have no resiliency in your host. Um, and it requires then some modifications of the host because of that. Um, you also have some of the more software as a service technologies that operate as like data brokers. Um, a lot of the drivers to those are very alpha beta. So especially if you have like high IO apps, I'm personally against having any databases actually in containers. It's been improving as the technology is improving, but anything is like high transactional, which with high IO, I've crashed containers multiple times, especially in prod. Um, I have no problem with that for mocks and tests and dev, so developers can get their work done until they get to a their release environment, the CI/CD release environment, and they can deploy there mm-hmm. and run through their battery. Now you mentioned this maturity model, mm-hmm. and so w- w- tell us more about the maturity model. Um, again, it's focusing on the host, the data, and then the operations. Um, so I'm basically ranking, okay, if you're like kind of starting out, these are the things to focus on, um, usually like top two, top three. And then as you get more advanced and you start getting to like true optimization and knowing your environment, these are going to be your, like your top three things to do. We're not even fully there that, that there yet. A lot of it's because I'm testing the technology, putting it through its paces, um, of course, there's upsets like finally Windows, Docker finally works, but of course, it just literally just reaches right into the kernel with no controls on syscalls. Mm-hmm. So you have some now you have Linux versus Windows on how they operate, and you got some of the older technologies like LXC. They operate a little differently. So how does somebody put that maturity model to use? Is it like the first level has some basic things mm-hmm. that they want to do, and then then there's corresponding levels, and with the goal of them reaching, what's the top level? Optimization, full optimization. Okay, so flow. So, yeah. so their goal then is to transition. Now, is there application security things built into each of the levels? Yeah, I'm doing um, hardening, CVE detection, vulnerability detection, uh, like, um, and then runtime protections, which are more on the laters. And that's basically from how we learn how to use the technology and how I see other people using the technology. So from a hardening perspective, you're focused in on the kind of automated mm-hmm. ensuring that you can just push a button and the container comes out with all the things that we've talked about already. It's not running as root. 
Um, it's got some restrictions on the system calls, the trusted sources, trusted sources for things. So, so that's kind of all. So I guess in the container world, that's all in your automation right. scripts. Whereas in the old days, when I used to do stuff like this, it involved visiting <laughs> hundreds, if not millions or thousands right. or millions of servers around and typing in 17 pages of commands, hoping that it all got done correctly. Right. I mean, the, the key thing to remember about containers, is it's just a package management system. It's literally, most of them are just TARs with an MD5 hash and some metadata around them. So that when you do it, run is going to run consistently. Now the question is, when it's in that runtime, is it going to be consistent? Because uh, what's happening is some of those apps are now drifting, and then they somewhat change their config depending if they've been attacked, or it's just a really bad configuration deployment. Mm -hmm. So then from a CVE detection perspective, is that something that from a process perspective happens at build? So when you build the container... It, you, you do some type of a check to see is, are there any known CVEs? Do you have a, do you have like a manifest or a manifest of all the packages that are running so you can check to see what CVEs might exist? So all the container technologies will typically show the steps of how they did the build. It's a matter of the tool of how deep it can go. Some of the tools were only start at the OS level and maybe, um, actually a lot of them will just kind of stop there right now. A couple of other tools that are on the market, um, both open source and commercial, will start drilling down into the native package managers like PIP, NPM, and then they'll do their CV detection and pivot from there. Um, some more of the advanced tools are starting to actually start doing typical kind of like malware sandbox kind of activities. So they start taking, they'll start watching the processes, recording the PID, how to execute it, and start hashing it. And then you can start doing your typical um, attack vector matching uh, for indicators of compromise from that direction. Hmm. So from the CVE detection perspective, is that something in the container that's only happening at the build time? Or, I mean, I guess, or are you, is it best practice to just recycle your containers once every 24 hours and just have them rebuild? You can. It depends on your organization policies. Like if we have like a major, um, if we have, if there's a major US cert alert that's a critical or high volume, um, typically they have a reporting period of seven days um, to either report what your status is or if you fixed it. So in a container world, none of our containers last past like maybe 48 or 24 hours. Okay. We made an organizational decision to do that. Continue to recycle. Right. Okay. The other one is patching. So a lot of the containers, especially on public market, do not patch, mm -hmm. even from their upsource image. So they'll have all sorts of vulnerable things. So it's making sure you're building those patching into your image build process so that um, since it's a since it's a package, you want to make sure the patches are applied in that image build. So when they go and do their testing of that image, it's already been tested and vetted with the patches already involved. Hmm. Instead of just doing it after the effect and then they'll blame the patches. Hmm. So then on the on the vulnerability detection side, I'm guessing this just means I mean is is there some type of interface that you're able to access from outside the container or how, how do you detect vulnerabilities that are inside a container? So, I mean, it's pretty much a binary at that point. So what the tool does is it'll take like the static image, pull it down and then rip and strip. Um, and then also basically through the file system first. Um, for the runtime, it requires that container to be running in a test environment. And then what it'll do is usually it'll use some kind of privileged container to watch those actions. Privilege means it's running as root and has access to all the other containers on mm -hmm. that host. Um, and it'll sit there and just watch the activity and then report it back and then hit its compliance rules or uh, enforcement rules. 
Now, what, when we talk about, I mean, vulnerability detection and then this, these kind of runtime checks and things, this is this AppSec, is this related to the applications that are running on top of or inside of these containers, or is it more the infrastructure of the container, the Linux kernel, the different packages that are providing the operating system? So some of the technology today will actually go through the whole entire stack. So it can see into the host and actually flag CVEs in the host. Uh, at the daemon level and at the container and the application level, depending. Okay. Now, do they do any type of, like, dynamic scanning? Like, we would, from a general AppSec perspective, we think of a dynamic scanner as being something that is uh, a tool we can point at a running application from outside and try to see if there's any different vulnerabilities that it can deduce. Uh, is there, is that possible in the, in the container world? Is it needed in the container world? I, Every, everyone's still using traditional means to do that. Um, there's one or two vendors that are looking at basically injecting like web application firewalls at the container level. So hmm. literally, um, as their wrapper, they're doing that WAF at that level um, before it allows the network execution coming into the container. Hmm. So WAF on board. Yep. Right inside the container. <laughs> so it's almost like we're going to have this minimal world. We're going to start adding all these other pieces yes. into it. And it's basically going to be, oh, the, the inside your container, that's the cloud now. Right. Like it's Pretty be much. Like, it's a mini cloud. Yeah. yeah. You're right. going to have everything. That's a good way to think about it, actually. A mini cloud. Because for us, it's about, it's the whole problem, well, it worked on my machine problem. Uh, so for a dev, they can run that container at that local uh, on their local host, as long as they have their mocks to help with the, the data side. And then they can deploy the test. We've seen very little variation there because they make configuration. They inject their uh, environment variables at runtime. So they can say, okay, for my dev environment, these are my environment variables for the app, for tests, and then here's for prod. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the secrets management. Now, we've been seeing a lot of secrets being baked into the file system. Of course, they're in the clear. Anybody can just run a simple history command. You can see those. Um, some of the tech is getting better. Um, like Kubernetes and older versions, um, on the host, the uh, creds are st stored in the clear. Mm. So they're assuming, a, they're assuming a risk trust boundary that, hey, if you have root to that... You would get it anyway. You get it so, anyway. So yeah. um, in our world, no, that doesn't fly. No. <laughs> we should all... Uh, depth and, right, yeah. exactly. Right. So now does your maturity model have something about secrets management yes. in it? Okay. And what's the, what's the expectation then from a container perspective uh, as far as it, our environment variables, passing secrets through environment variables, is that an accepted practice? That's pretty much like the middle of the road practice. Okay. The better practice is they come in encrypted and you use some kind of third-party tool when they need to be accessed to decrypt. And let that manage And it. let that manage it. Because right. then you're not keeping them in memory the whole time. Right. That makes sense. And you can't use volatility or something to scrape it out. Right. Yeah. Right. So I guess uh, uh, kind of a way to wrap up our conversation here. And, and um, I'd love to get your thoughts on... So we kind of put ourselves into a scenario here where, you know, you've got a lot of experience in rolling out containers and making sure everything is secure. Um, if we had somebody who's listening here who maybe just brand, may starting out in the world of Docker from maybe they know Docker but they don't know Docker from the enterprise perspective, right. uh, what what does that look like from your perspective? What are, what are some of the things that you would recommend? Kind of the lessons learned you took away now now that you've got the 
the scars and <laughs> all the, <laughs> everything just to demonstrate like, you know, you've already been down these roads. You've, right. you've, uh, and you've mentioned a couple as we go, but I'm just, I want to kind of spend the rest of our time focused in on what could somebody do who wants to take away, who wants to, to, to borrow a little bit of your knowledge right. and, and apply it to what they're doing. Um, that's why I'm, that's the big thing why I'm putting the maturity model out because um, governments of public affairs publishing is a little hard. So this is a backdoor method to kind of be like, hey, by the way, this is what we're recommending. Um, they may not be making these other two main publications, CIS Security Benchmarks and then NIST because they have committees. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of saying this is what we believe how things should be. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is I keep seeing these containers increase more as binaries, almost being treated as firmware. So you're going to see a lot of more Internet of Things starting to pick this up. Hmm. And start running with it. Okay. And start running with yeah. it. Because it's an easy deployment model for that. Sure, of course. But from a, from a starting standpoint, I highly recommend the CS security benchmarks. Um, they have a level one and a level two. The level one is like general compute, and then the level two is more sensitive operations. And they have scored and not scored. We tend to take them all as scored. There's some that are subjective, but a lot of them are objective now. We've been working that out. What does scored versus unscored mean? Um, and on some of the open source tools and the commercial tools, the scoring means you can enforce them, um, that it should occur. The non-scored are typically more of the subjective ones where you have to kind of figure out what you really want. Oh, so like how many how many vulnerable packages do you, are you able to port right. to on your device? Yeah. Uh, if greater than 10, then you need to just quit and go right. back and start over, <laughs> start the process <laughs> over again. Yeah, DoD, Stig, and a couple of the hardening policies have the same stuff. Like okay. uh, find all the accounts that may have uh, 777 privilege mm-hmm. and then how you deal with that. Yeah, that the, the um, I'm, I'm still thinking back to that con- containers as firmware thing you mentioned here from the IoT perspective, and I'm kind of debating in my own mind like IoT security's been pretty bad yes. in general as an industry. Right. Now I'm wondering if containers might actually make it better. <laughs> I still what I was wondering. When yeah, we just mentioned we that. just pull it from registry every once in a while. Yeah, yeah. I mean, do you think it's do, do you see that as a as something that could actually make IoT better? Yeah, I mean, there's already the signing technology there. So, I mean, it's right. a signed package. Right. You, they could easily set the trust. It's only to them. So it prevents, a, that's an integrity check. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't have any encrypted yet, but eh, I don't think that's really needed. Um, but your registry sources would matter too. Well, if any then, IoT people are listening out there, <laughs> get <laughs> Docker, build stuff with Docker, with all the things. Think yeah. about it, yeah. That's great. Because it does imp- will improve your security model. So um, any resources that you recommend? Obviously, the maturity model is something that right. you're going to recommend. And, and I know we're, I'm going to go take a closer look at that. We're going to give it straight to OWASP to post. Oh, really? Awesome. Even oh, better. Yeah. That Good. is great. Because so, we're anything I do speaking, because this is a public forum, it's considered public content. And open source. And so is that a... Um, I can Actually, government cannot hold copyright. So right. okay. because of how the agreement for OWASP is, they're holding a non-attribution, well, they're holding attribution, but... They're typical. Right. Now, is that a is there a project name for that's that, it. or it's just you're just going to release it? Just the release as it. Okay. That. Yeah. So that's where folks can go to track it down. What else? What other resources helped you in your kind of container security journey? Where would you? What would you recommend people go and take there's, a look at? There's actually a couple of like pre-made public clouds. Um, we actually cut our teeth first on um, Amazon ECS because it was just an agent, and auto scaling just kind of handled 
um, having that same container on that same host and then scaling it out on CPU or um, or memory load. Um, uh, Red Hat has one as well, um, which is free for use and kind of playing around with. Um, of course, you can always use the typical like uh, cheap cloud providers that are out there as well, where they charge by the hour. Mm-hmm. Okay, so yeah, so that's that sounds like good advice though for folks that want to get started well, is to get out into these kind of public, you know, use some like you guys did, use some of something that's a little easier, mm-hmm. less of a learning curve as a way to get started here versus trying to dive in and yeah. build all the infrastructure first because you're never gonna <laughs> you're never gonna get anywhere with it's, that. And some of the enterprise and orchestration tools can be kind of daunting, so you have to understand what that container is doing, what it looks like at runtime, and then start pivoting and orchestrating out. Cool. Well, Brian, thank you for your time to uh, share this with us. Uh, I know I learned I learned quite a bit about <laughs> yeah. containers that I didn't really realize, and I'm going to go start telling anyone in the IoT space. <laughs> Brian said you should look at this maturity <laughs> model, and you should build your software in containers so that it's signed, and it don't make it run as root, and uh, control your system calls. So, yeah, thank you very much for being Appreciate here. It. Appreciate it. Appreciate it, Brian. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Application Security Podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, please do us a favor and visit the iTunes store and give us a five-star rating. Our intro music is 8-Bit Kung Fu by Bourne and TJ, and the outro is Southern Delight by Stefan Kartenberg. You can find us on Twitter at AppSecPodcast or on the web at www.appsecpodcast.org.